Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Monday, February 20th, 2023. Speaking to you here from my room at St. Patrick's Seminary. <laughs> Another lovely day here in the Bay Area as uh, spring continues to progress nearer and nearer. I don't know, are we actually in spring yet or is it still to come? Got to look at the calendar here. I think it probably starts next month, right? Let's see. Yeah, spring begins. Yeah, March 20th. Okay, we've got a whole month to go. But uh, it certainly is, um, well, it's encroaching on winter. <laughs> and I hope that wherever you are in the world, too, you're experiencing a little bit of uh, this foretaste of spring. Maybe just a little bit of sun, you know, a little bit of uh, bird song, some flowers, maybe beginning to just uh, open up their petals. Um, yeah, here... Spring tends to start early, and uh, I, I very much enjoy it, even though it's, you know, it's not particularly warm, but it is sunny. And, uh, you know, we're drawing near to Lent, right? This week we have uh, Ash Wednesday coming up in two days, the beginning of Lent. And I just learned recently there's an etymological connection between the word Lent and the word lengthen. So Lent has to do with springtime, the actual word Lent, because this is the time the days begin to lengthen. They get longer. We have more light. The world is filling up with more and more light. I've always thought this connection between Lent and springtime is an interesting one. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily make much sense um, on a purely natural level, you know, because Lent, of course, is the time of austerity. Lent is the time of fasting, abstinence. We kind of cut back. We tighten the belt. We increase our discipline. And it seems like, at least to me, it seems like Lent is more suited to the dead of winter. <laughs> but instead, Lent always begins around this time when spring is beginning to make itself known. And it's like the whole world is waking up. You know, the sap is starting to flow in the trees. The plants are uh, pushing up towards heaven. The sun is shining in the sky. And then Lent begins in the midst of all of this, the lengthening of days. It's no accident, you know, and part of what the church is teaching us through this, simply through the cycle of the natural season, which overlaps with the liturgical season, is that um, there's a deep, deep, deep connection written into the very nature of things between life and death. And that in the spiritual life, in the order of grace, a certain amount of mortification, which one spiritual author describes as... Um, death on an installment plan, <laughs> portioned out just a little, little bit over a long time. Mortification in the spiritual life really leads to growth, really leads to new life. And so that's part of what we're practicing this Lent and every Lent. We see the promise of life all around us in the world, but it's also important that like yeah, the promise of life is around us. It's beginning to stir, but it's, it's in, a, in that sense, it's already happening, but it's not yet fulfilled. We're not in springtime yet. We're just kind of on the threshold, and we're seeing the signs of it, that, that, that it's drawing near. And so that's what's happening naturally. It's also happening supernaturally. We can already, like, we can see the signs of Easter coming. You know, it's downstream, but it's coming. 
But in order to, to get there, to arrive there, I mean, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't have to do anything really to arrive at Easter. We'll just get there sooner or later, no matter what. We're just being carried along by the current of time. But in order to profit from it, and in order for there to be new life in us, then we have to go through a kind of a death. We've got to go through some mortification. That's, I think, part of the meaning, the, the spiritual meaning of Lent, which occurs during this time of the coming of spring, looking forward towards Easter. In order for us to receive the gift of new life, we must go through a kind of a new death, a new spiritual death. Putting, and what does that mean? It means putting to death in us that which is opposed to the inrushing of the Spirit of God, to the springing up of new spiritual life. We need to put all that to death, put the, the old man to death, as St. Paul says, so the new man can rise. So it's very easy to say, and it's uh, very beautiful to reflect upon, but it takes some real work and some real grit to put into practice. So um, hopefully all of us are beginning to think about what we'll do this Lent and uh, how we're going to spend this season, you know, uh, putting to death what, what the Lord really is asking us to um, in order to receive that gift of new life come Easter time. So... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I shared this on the podcast before or not, but we have a new director of sacred music here at St. Patrick's Seminary. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Donaldson Novitska, incredibly skilled, well-known, really renowned musician, an expert in sacred music. By the way, if you hear some kind of rustling sounds in the background here, I'm making myself a cup of tea. So uh, that's what's going on right now. So anyway, we have Dr. Jennifer Donaldson here. She started here this year. And amongst many, many good works that she's doing here at the seminary, she is offering individual voice lessons for all the seminarians. And so I was having my lesson with her um, maybe about two weeks ago now. And uh, we were having this lesson and we were just focusing on breath work, just how to breathe well, you know. And she was very gracious toward me. She said, it doesn't matter if you're a complete novice or if you're like a professional opera singer <laughs> meeting with your, uh, your, um, your instructor. Uh, basically, the nuts and bolts of what they're going to focus on is about the same. We always go back to the basics. And what's the most basic thing about singing is breathing and like the, sh the shape of the mouth and what you do with your muscles, your jaw muscles. Um, it's also important. Breathing is such an embodied, I mean, I mean, singing is such an embodied art. Uh, and what we do with our bodies really affects the quality of our sound. But her point about breathing was so impactful for me, not only in terms of better vocal performance, but in terms of the spiritual life. Because she said, based on the principle of a vacuum, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So when we really breathe out all the breath that we have, then we simply need to open our mouths, right? And air will flow in. In other words, when we're singing and it comes time to take a breath between phrases, we don't need to take like a huge laborious breath and really like strive and struggle to take in a lot of air. No, we've already probably expressed most of our air on the last phrase. And so what we need to do actually is just push out the last little bit of breath that we have. So then you just open your mouth, you relax into the breath, 
and you naturally are filled up with air. And the amazing thing is that you have a lot more um, support then for the next phrase than you would if you like tried to just like take a, a big breath without pushing out what was already there. What the end result of that kind of breathing is you're not getting a big enough breath. You're not getting enough support. You're going to run out of air in the middle of the phrase and have to take another breath. But if you just naturally just kind of push out all the air you have and just relax into the breath and let yourself be filled up with air, even though it seems um, counterintuitive because it's more effortless, you actually get more air and you get more support for the next phrase. This has profound implications too for the spiritual life, right? And as I say that, I mean, you know, even the word spiritual, spirit, spirit has to do with breath, the idea of breathing, the breath of God, right? So in the spiritual life too, um, what we really need to be focusing in on, probably in the, in the beginnings, like getting back to basics, is pushing out whatever is within us, so we can receive more of God, of the breathing of God. And we can simply effortlessly open up to receive from God the gift of his life, the gift of his spirit poured out upon us at every moment. And so that's why in uh, the traditional practices of Lent, you know, we got fasting and prayer. And they go hand in hand. By fasting, we're kind of pushing out attachments, you know, whatever we're fasting from, we're kind of breaking our ties to things, we're pushing out what, has, what we've allowed to fill us up that's not of God. And then by prayer, we open ourselves up to receive from God His life and to be filled up again anew with, um, yeah, with life and light from above. So that's the, the double movement. And then, of course, almsgiving. Then when we're filled up with God, we overflow. <laughs> and so by almsgiving, we give of ourselves in, uh, in charity, in service. So it's, it's kind of a beautiful, just kind of a circular pattern, right? Like, like our breathing, like just our, our normal, natural human breathing. We breathe out, then we breathe in. And as we breathe out, when we're filled up with, like, like with, with true breath, I mean, with the breath of God, then when we breathe out, we also breathe out the life of God on others who are around us. And then we breathe in, we receive more of God, we breathe out, we give more of God. It's just this virtuous cycle, this circular movement that builds on itself. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's beautiful to contemplate on. Of course, it takes some real grit to put into practice. <laughs> it's easy to say, it's hard to do, especially hard to keep doing, right? So um, as we prepare to just begin Lent, and we're going to start strong on Ash Wednesday here in a couple days with fasting and abstinence, with prayer, with whatever disciplines that we are taking on or whatever we're cutting out, <laughs> let's just begin Lent by praying for the grace of perseverance, right? to uh, carry through whatever we're beginning to the end. And of course, we'll also be prudent. We shouldn't try to take on too much. If we try to take on too much at the beginning, then we're very liable a week or two in to fail because it's too much for us and then just give up. So it's better to do a little, do a reasonable amount, and do it consistently for 40 days. And I think we'll we'll be amazed if we pray for the grace of perseverance to stick with it. We'll be amazed at what the Lord can do in us and with us 
in 40 days of sustained practice. So that's my hope for this Lent. Um, my hope is that this will, that this new season will really mark a new beginning, a new beginning for each one of us. Um, that's the beautiful thing about the turning of the seasons, you know, the turning of the seasons, every new season really marks a new beginning. It's kind of like, you might say a, a reset button, you know, here we are again at square one. And so we have the opportunity then to do things differently. We don't have to carry on doing things the way we've been doing them. We can make changes. We can start again from scratch, so to speak. We can, we can start afresh. That's what the Lord is offering us this Lent. So let us move ahead uh, into this new beginning with Jesus and Mary and all the saints. Amen? Amen. Got my tea here now. I have, uh, I should put a little bit of honey in this tea, actually. Speaking of, speaking of uh, discipline, <laughs> well, let me sweeten up my tea a little bit with some honey. <laughs> I'm having a bit of a sore throat today. I hope I'm not getting sick. So I'm going to try to um, preemptively counteract that with some honey and some hot tea. Um, oh, so I wanted to share with all of you on In Your Embrace podcast that I did in fact pass my comprehensive exams. Thanks be to God and thanks to all of you for your prayers and support. We finished them up last, uh, well actually the weekend before last. Um, we finished them up on the 11th of February. And uh, yeah, it was certainly, it was certainly comprehensive. Let me tell you, let me put it that way. <laughs> the oral exam in particular, um, it was especially grueling because we had the academic dean from Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. fly out as the fourth person on our examination panel. So the other three were, you know, faculty members here at St. Patrick's. We know them very well. They know us. Um, we've, we've, you know, we've had class with all of them. So it was very natural. They each had 10 minutes to ask us questions, and they probably asked us, you know, maybe two, maybe three um, each. But then he <laughs> came to this Dominican father, and in his 10 minutes, he crammed in maybe 15 or 20 questions. I mean, and as soon as he would hear whatever keyword or phrase he was looking for in your answer, he would interrupt and jump to a different question from all over, all the areas of theology. He would jump from like bioethics to scripture to, you know, the Trinity to moral theology. I mean, all over the place. And, um, you know, it was pretty uh, difficult sometimes to keep up with him. So I'm very grateful that ultimately it seems like he was, he was pleased with my answers. I mean, he gave me a good grade. In the exam, though, he gave no sign whatsoever of, of being pleased or satisfied. He was very difficult to read. He would, just, he would just immediately jump into the next question. And so I left there not really knowing you know, how well I did. I was pretty confident I did fine with the other professors, but with him, I thought, I really don't know what he, he's going to think. So when I got the results back later on that same day, I was very, very happy. Um, I passed with flying colors, and now it's all in the past. It's all over and done with. Thanks be to God. So, you know, people at the seminary are asking, like, Deacons, what do you have to do these days now that you've finished your comprehensive exams? What, like, what is there left for you? Well, um, one thing, of course, is to defend the MA thesis. I'm going to set a date for that coming up in the next few weeks. 
um, along with if there's any final revisions to make. So I'll get that done sometime pretty soon. Then, of course, we're continuing with our practicum work. So um, one exciting thing is last week on Friday, I started for the first time practicing the traditional Latin Mass. I'm learning how to celebrate that Mass, um, being taught by my formation director, one of our priests here at St. Bant's. So I'm going to continue that pretty much every week from now through the end of the semester. Um, in our formal practicum class, we are practicing how to celebrate the ordinary form of the Mass. So we're going to continue to get more practice with that. Um, but I've already been practicing that on my own once a week, pretty much, since the fall semester. So I'm getting a lot of practice in it. And the goal is just to have it be at a point that it's kind of habitual and natural, even by, the, the, by day one. <laughs> so then, you know, our first Mass is not the first time we're doing any of this. Our first time doing it as a priest, doing it for real. But the idea is, okay, we've already got so many hours of practice that this really comes naturally. Um, and we need that because I know the first time that we do any, any of this for real, we're going to be scared. There's going to be a lot of emotions, going to be a lot of distractions. And so we really need to be prepared well in advance. But yeah, I'm excited to start practicing the TLM a little bit more. Um, of course, I love the traditional Latin Mass, and I hope to, well, I, I fully intend to at least celebrate it privately, um, like on my days off for my own personal uh, devotion, um, because, of course, when, even when a priest is, is off, he doesn't have a Mass in the parish, he still is supposed to say Mass, right? So I'm looking forward to saying the TLM for my own private Masses, and um, hopefully one day publicly as well. That seems unlikely in the near future because of Traditionis Custodes, Pope Francis's motu proprio from 2020, which um, restricts the ability of priests ordained since the time of its publication to celebrate the TLM um, in public. But, you know, we never know what can happen in the future of the church, right? So, um, and certainly uh, we need to learn you know, even though right now it, uh, its, it's uh, celebration publicly is somewhat restricted, nonetheless, we're going to be priests of the Roman Rite. So we need to know how to celebrate the Roman Rite, not just the Reformed Rites as they've been promulgated since 1969, but also the traditional Roman Rites as they existed since Gregory the Great. We really need to be uh, fluent, right? <laughs> pun not intended, <laughs> but fluent in our own right and our own traditions and customs. So I'm really excited to start, uh, you know, diving into that more deeply in these last few months of the semester. Um, we're also just continuing with confession practice. We're doing anointing of the sick, practicum, all that kind of stuff. And then I've got my pastoral work on the weekend still, preaching every weekend. I've got confirmation classes once a month. Got one of those coming up next weekend. I got to prepare for on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and um, yeah, those students are going to be confirmed before we know it. I mean, April I think is the date. Like sometime mid to late April is the date for the confirmation. So I just got a couple more lessons with them, and then man, they're going to be they're going to be out the door, confirmed, filled with the Holy Spirit, sent out on mission. Boom! Here we go. So that's that's exciting. I've enjoyed my time with those students uh, this year at Mater Dolorosa. Um, and then, yeah, we've just got, you know, our typical 
classwork is kind of at a low simmer on the back burner. <laughs> Readings, you know, little papers and things to do over the course of the semester. So uh, we've, we're keeping busy, but definitely the intensity is a lot less now that comps are over. And it's been a welcome respite to have a little bit more free time opening up in my schedule, have, um, you know, a little bit more margin, right, around the different events that make up my day. Um, but I'm not struggling to, you know, fill up every spare moment with study. Now I can just take a little, a little breather, have a little walk, have a cup of tea, <laughs> uh, do a little reading for pleasure, and... Uh, yeah, not have the specter of the coming exams hanging over my head like a guillotine at every moment. So praise be to God for that. And thank you all so much for your, your prayers and support. I'm going to take a sip of my tea here. Ah, very nice. I wanted to just share with you a couple of brief uh, reading recommendations. If you're looking for some spiritual reading for Lent, so the first one I want to share is one of our professors here at St. Patrick's. Her name is Dr. Nina Hierman. You will have heard her on the podcast a couple of times recently, most recently talking about uh, Marcel Van back in January. So she's a professor of sacred scripture, and she recently published a book. It's called A Thirst for the Spirit, Biblical Wisdom for Desert Times. I've got it here in my hands. It was published by Emmaus Road Publishing out of Steubenville, Ohio. And uh, I'm just looking through the table of contents. There's seven different chapters. You know, this book is primarily about the role of woman in the church and in the scriptures. Um, so it, it, especially the first couple of, uh, of chapters here, I'll just give you a, a, a taste of the table of contents. Chapter one, I will make a helper suited to him the pneumatological vocation of Eve. Pneumatological meaning having to do with the Holy Spirit. So th this chapter is looking at the relationship in the very creation of man and woman from the beginning. Like what's the role of Eve? And then extrapolating out from her, what's the role of woman in the order of salvation, in the order of grace? Uh, very interesting question. Chapter 2, Queen Esther and the Feminine Genius. Very interesting as well. Chapter 3, The Formation of a Prophet for Desert Times. And Chapter 4, 12 Rules for Life in the Desert. I haven't read this yet, but I think those chapters, 3 and 4, um, could potentially be very, very good spiritual reading for Lent. After all, um, Lent is the desert time par excellence, right? like the Israelites wandering in the desert, or our Lord going out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to fast and do battle with the devil. So I think these chapters give us some good rules for discernment and what we ought to do when we find ourselves in the desert, right? Looking at some of those rules, yeah, I'm just going to give you a little taste here. Um, be ready for a detour. <laughs> know in faith that the Lord is with you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Um, choose obedience. Yeah. Prepare yourself to embrace the cross. Wow. And each of these are expanded out with um, examples from the scriptures and really words of hope from the scriptural witness and from the history of, of Israel and the church. So that's chapter four. Chapter five, the Song of Songs, a prophecy of Jesus' love for the soul. That's Dr. Hiram's specialty, by the way, the Song of Songs. 
Chapter 6, Who is she? The roots of the church in the Old and New Testament. Yeah. And then chapter 7, Finding Consolation in the Book of Revelation. So, uh, that's just to give you a little bit of a foretaste of this book. I really encourage you all to check this out if you have the opportunity and the means. You can find it on Emmaus Road Publishing and probably anywhere Catholic books are sold. A Thirst for the Spirit by Dr. Nina Hiraman. Another book I wanted to recommend to you all, and this is just a, a really little uh, resource, but a brother seminarian gave this to me, and I'm looking forward to reading through it more closely during the weeks of Lent. It's called Born of Fire, and it's a Lenten devotional. It's by Father Innocent Montgomery, CFR. That's the uh, conventual Franciscans of the Renewal based out of New York, I'm pretty sure. And so this book has to do with um, the masculine identity and the masculine genius, you might say. Dr. Herman's book, The Feminine Genius, Woman in Creation, Woman in Salvation, Woman in the Order of Grace, beautiful. This book has to do with the masculine identity and I should probably say identities because for each week of Lent, it's looking successively at kind of the different layers that make up the identity of a man. So week one, I'm looking again at the table of contents here. Week one of Lent is focused on the identity of a son. What does it mean to be a son? Week two, brother. Week three, man. Week four, spouse. Week five, father. Then it even goes further. Holy Week <laughs> looks at what it means to be a mystic. And then the Easter octave looks at what it means to be a new man in Christ. So I'm really excited to go through this book, uh, this Lent. And it just gives you a little bit of scripture to read for every day of every week of Lent. So it gives you, I'm just looking here at week one, you know, it gives you two verses of scripture, <laughs> the baptism of Jesus from St. Mark's gospel. So really just a little bite of scripture. And then for every day, it gives you a little meditation that about one page, maybe a page and a half. You read the meditation and then it gives you just a little prompt for prayer. Jesus, help me to receive the truth that I am a beloved son of the father. That's it. So it just gives you a little something you can chew on during your holy hours or your times of prayer for every day of Lent. So for you men who are listening, really, really, really heartily recommend this. And um, if you do decide to go through it, please drop me a line and let me know. I'd love to just uh, partner up. You know, we can uh, talk about it a little bit as Lent goes on and maybe even share about it on the podcast if you're open to it. Um, yeah, share some reflections uh, of this book. So again, the book is called Born of Fire by Father Innocent Montgomery, CFR, Franciscans of the Renewal. And as I'm, I'm just looking it up on Google right now because I, I wasn't sure where to find it. You can find it on Amazon. You can get it actually on Kindle for about 10 bucks or you can get the paperback, which is what I have for $20. So not too much of an investment. It's available on Amazon. It's also available on blessedisshe.net. And that's the physical book for $25. So that's where you can find that. Born of Fire by Father Innocent Montgomery. And I'm going to go ahead and put links to those two books 
uh, at least the Amazon links, into the uh, podcast description for this episode. So if you're interested in getting either one, just click on the link and you'll be able to purchase it from there. So hopefully um, those two recommendations might be helpful for some of you. If you're just thinking, you know, what can I specifically do this Lent to dive a little bit deeper into prayer and meditation? I think either of those books would make a really excellent Lenten devotional to guide your prayer and meditation this season. All right, well, speaking of prayer and meditation, let's jump over now to our Carmelite conversation. We took a week off from St. Teresa's Interior Castle. So let's pick up where we left off with the third dwelling places. Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. I have no need to climb to the height of the great saints, but I just have to be myself, a little child. In these words of scripture, I found at last my little way to become a saint. So let's take a look behind us <laughs> and just see where we've been so far in the journey into the interior castle. By now, the soul has moved through the door of the castle, which of course is prayer and reflection. The soul has moved from the outside into those first rooms of the castle, the first dwelling places. He brought all these little creatures with it, all the attachments, the addictions, the distracting thoughts, the afflicting spirits, the spirits of darkness and of the world, uh, the flesh and the devil. They've all come in with it, but it, it made it through those both the initial door and through those first dwelling places into the second. And the second dwelling places now, it's a little bit closer to the center. Most of those creatures have been left behind. They're no longer swarming around and surrounding the soul with this disturbing racket. There's a little bit more warmth, a little bit more light now that it's that much closer to the center of the castle where God dwells. We talked about last time in the second dwelling places that what the soul most especially needs now is just perseverance, right? By now in the second dwelling places, um, typically the soul starts to have a little bit more of a desire for spiritual things. It's seeking out, you know, spiritual readings and sermons and going to prayer groups and things like that. But the temptations are going to ratchet up as well because the devil really wants the soul to turn back. And so what it really needs is just to persevere, to be encouraged by the growth that it sees and not to pay much attention really to the temptations of the devil or the, the discouragements that, that it may come up, uh, that it may experience when it, you know, uh, will give in to certain temptations or fall back into old patterns of sin. It needs to get up and keep going forward, keep choosing God, choosing life with Jesus and trying to build up that personal relationship with the Lord. As it perseveres in saying yes, letting go of unhealthy habits, overcoming the addictions, driving out the little creatures that still remain, and determining to move forward deeper into the castle, then it won't be long before such a soul moves forward from the second into the third dwelling places. Now, the third dwelling places of the interior castle really mark the end of the beginning. And what do I mean by that? 
Well, some theologians refer to the third dwelling places as the dwellings of exemplary life. By the time a soul gets into the third dwelling places, it's not to say that that soul is, is perfect by any means. There's quite a lot of uh, spiritual development and growth still ahead. And the soul is still very weak. But from an exterior perspective, by the time it's in the third dwelling places, you know, a person kind of has their life put together. They're living a pretty virtuous life. That means it's a life marked by a good Christian discipline. Um, it's regular. It's well-ordered. Their life is pretty prudently um, arranged. They've got their times for prayer and they're faithful to them. They're accomplishing the duties of their state of life and they're doing it regularly and they're doing it well. So whether that means you're a, a you know, husband and a father, you're putting in your time at work, you're earning the money the family needs in order to be well-maintained, and also you're spending a good amount of time at home, getting home early, uh, going to the kids' baseball games, having date night with your wife, etc., etc., etc. You're fulfilling all the duties of your state of life. Um, there's a, a quality of balance, you know, not to say that on certain days things might not, you know, get tend toward extremes here or there. Different things crop up that take your attention. But on the whole, if you look at the big picture, your life's pretty balanced. And throughout all the different things that you're doing, your different activities, there's beginning to be a kind of a, a regular, sustained spirit of peace. Now, the limitation of the third dwelling places is basically a limitation of vision. And I'll propose it to you this way. You know, if we're just looking at the exterior, we would think, well, by the time somebody makes it to the third dwelling places, what more is there? <laughs> um, and to be sure, this is the idea that a lot of Christians kind of seem to have, at least implicitly, about the Christian life. It's basically about sin management. <laughs> and by the time you make it to the third dwelling places, well, you're not falling into any really serious sins. If you do, it's, it's something quite exceptional. And it, it, what that basically means is you've, you've slid backwards, you're backsliding into the second or first dwelling places. But you just get up and you try again. And you pretty easily, pretty quickly get back into the third dwelling places where you were before. You kind of bounce back. But on the whole, you're not falling into any serious sins. You're not committing mortal sins. You're not breaking the Ten Commandments. Your sins uh, are probably more like venial sins, and you're trying to avoid even those. So your life in terms of sin management is going pretty well. <laughs> it's pretty well ordered and it's pretty peaceful. And, you know, you're doing your prayer and your fasting and your almsgiving. <laughs> so then what more is there? That's what I mean when I say the limitation is a, is a lack of vision. A soul in the third dwelling place, in the third dwelling places, has not yet really tasted and experienced the surpassing love of God. A soul in the third dwelling places probably has not yet really had their eyes opened, the spiritual eyes of the soul opened to the goodness and the grandeur and the horizons of the spiritual life that are infinite and eternal. Maybe it's heard about these things, but it hasn't yet experienced them firsthand.
And so a soul in the third dwelling places then has not yet really begun to fall in love with God. Um, as Father Pedro Arupe says, in a quite final and an absolute way. You know, the soul is giving themselves to God. They're living a holy life, an exemplary life. But it hasn't yet penetrated to the very depths of who they are as a person, reaching into the very center of them and rearranging their life from within such that everything, everything in them now is oriented towards God out of this burning love for Him having experienced the love that he has for them. So again, the limitation of the third dwelling place and perhaps the danger of the third dwelling place is that a soul might think, this is kind of all there is, you know? I'm living this life that's pretty well-ordered, that's pretty balanced, and, um, you know, I'm doing my times of prayer, I'm meditating, and um, God seems to be close to me most of the time, so I'm just going to hang out here. That's the danger and the temptation of the third dwelling places because here's, here's the crucial point St. Teresa makes again and again and again. When you're in the third dwelling places, you're on the brink. You're on the threshold. I said it's the end of the beginning, by which I mean you really have to push forward to the fourth dwelling places. Or to say it a different way, the soul in the third dwelling place has to learn how to dispose itself for the Lord now to give it the gift, to basically to pick it up and move it into the, into the fourth dwelling places. The fourth dwelling places can't be reached by our own effort. God has to come and pick us up and put us there. So it's the end of the beginning because it's the end of what we can achieve simply by our own willing it, by our own effort and our own activity. Even, of course, presupposing God's prevenient grace and that we're corresponding with grace. And so a soul in the third dwelling place who kind of just wants to, oh, I'm going to sit back, rest on my laurels. Look, I've made it this far, right? It might be tempted even to kind of a spirit of pride, an insidious spirit of, of, of spiritual pride in oneself and one's own achievements. And a soul that, that sort of just wants to rest in the third dwelling places, stay there, you know, just hang out there, and maybe that begins to develop the spirit of pride, that soul is very, very likely to backslide into the second or the first dwelling places or even outside of the castle altogether. A fundamental principle of the spiritual life that St. Teresa just articulates again and again and again is if we're not moving forward, we're going to move backwards. There's simply no standing still. There's no standing still in the third dwelling places. And so again, What's necessary to move forward? The first thing that's necessary is the spirit of humility. St. Teresa, in every dwelling place, will, will remind us that we need to remain humble. We need to give the glory to God, not take it to ourselves. But that we've made it this far in the spiritual life, we simply cast our eyes up towards God and say, Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. You've delivered me from so many sins and addictions. Thank you, Lord. You've set me free. Thank you. You've enabled me to live a life that's well-balanced and well-ordered. Thank you for the gift of peace. Thank you, Lord. That my life now is as satisfying and as regular as it is. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It comes from you and not from me. Because St. Teresa points out, the more we've received from God, the more we are in his debt. 
So we can't arrogate the gifts that he gives to ourselves as if they're our own doing because we insult God <laughs> as we do so. And we fail to dispose ourselves to receive more of his favors. So if we're not receiving more of God's favors, we're going to lose those that we've even received up to this point. So the soul needs to be humble. The soul needs to also pray for an increase in especially faith and love to be able to move ahead. The soul also should be encouraged by the presence of dryness or the lack of consolation. Because in this dwelling place, as in the last one, God is very liable to withdraw his consolations for a period of time, precisely in order to increase our faith and our hope and our love for him. And so when the soul encounters dryness in, the, in, in its periods of prayer, it needs to simply persevere, give thanks to God, and remember that God withdraws those consolations in order to strengthen it because he wants that soul to make it all the way to the seventh dwelling places. And so shouldn't be disturbed or afflicted just because there's a period of dryness. Rather, the soul should use that dryness as kind of tinder for the fire of humility <laughs> and the fire of love and simply humbly admit to God, yes, I have so many imperfections. Look at me, look at me. I'm just a little, just a little guy. You know, I'm here in prayer. You withdraw from me for a second and I start to panic and wonder where you are. God, I just offer myself to you right now in this moment. Look at me with, look at me with condescension. You know, Lord, draw, just draw close to me. Just bring your cheek next to mine and give me a little kiss. And when it comes time for you, when you know it's for my good, lift me up to yourself and hold me close, God. If we just pray like that, very simply and humbly with St. Teresa says, unas palabras amorosas, just a few little loving words. Well, that's enough. And God will quickly come again, right? And, and let us feel his presence. Um, especially the more quickly we are to show our humility and our love for him. Now, the next thing that's needed in this period of the third dwelling places to move ahead is for the soul to dispose itself to receive the gift of infused contemplative prayer. And so this dwelling place, these dwelling places, the third dwelling places are very, very important in the progress of the soul towards ultimate union with God. So far, the kind of prayer that the soul has been doing for the most part has been active and um, acquired prayer. And what that means, active prayer is, is opposed to passive prayer, and acquired prayer is opposed to infused prayer. Active prayer, we'll just tackle that distinction first. Active prayer basically means I'm doing something. <laughs> when I go to prayer, I'm doing something. Whether it's vocal prayer, I'm reciting the rosary, I'm saying my divine office, um, or, or whether it's simply mental prayer, I'm doing Lexio Divina, I'm thinking about the scriptures. I am doing an Ignatian meditation where I place myself into a scene from the Bible. Whether it's vocal or mental, that's all kind of active prayer. I'm doing something. Passive prayer is I'm not really doing something. I'm listening. I'm waiting. I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm attentive. I'm receptive. I'm, I'm here disposed with open hands to receive, Lord, whatever it is you want to give, whatever word you want to speak. Lord, your servant is here, I'm listening, I'm open. 
Now, acquired prayer, basically similar to active prayer, but we can have either acquired active or acquired passive prayer in a certain sense. Acquired prayer basically means it comes about through my willing it, through my activity. So acquired passive prayer is an interesting category, but you might think, you know, what it looks like is I go into my prayer and um, I close my eyes probably, and I sit back in the chair, and maybe I, I place my open hands in my lap, and I just begin to focus on my breathing, and I'm slowing down my breathing, and maybe I'm saying a few simple words, right? Remember Daniel Murphy on the podcast spoke about this simple way of, simple way of praying with our breath a few months ago. You could do something like, um, as you're breathing in, you say, Jesus. And then as you breathe out, you say, mercy. Jesus. Mercy. As you do that for a while, then uh, your activity is going to, which was already pretty simple to begin with, is just going to gradually become less and less and less until you're doing almost nothing. You're probably not even saying the words anymore. You're just simply sitting there. Now, that's a kind of an acquired passive prayer. You're imploring the Lord for mercy. You're inviting him to come to show his mercy to you. But you're hardly doing anything yourself. You're simply just there to receive. Now, our acquired prayer opens up into infused prayer. An infused prayer is a totally different category altogether. Infused prayer comes from God. It doesn't come about because I will it or because I'm using some technique. Even something as simple as focusing on my breathing and saying the name of Jesus, it's not coming about because I have done anything other than to dispose myself to receive it. So my part is the acquired passive prayer of placing myself in the room at a set time for a set period of time, you know, calming myself down, opening myself up, inviting the Lord to come, waiting on the Lord. That's all acquired. That's my part. The infused prayer comes when the Lord answers our invitation and he comes into the soul. And the way that St. Teresa describes it is that the Lord actually suspends the activity of the faculties of the soul. I'm going to pause here to take a sip of tea while you think about that. <laughs> so, the Lord suspends the activity of the faculties of the soul. The faculties of the soul basically are the intellect and the will. And St. John of the Cross would also add the memory, but we don't need to get into that distinction very much today. Other than just, just to note that within the soul, there are basically two activities, right? Knowing and loving. These are the two most basic acts of the soul. So according to the classical scholastic distinction, if there's a distinct action, then there's also a distinct faculty for that action. So within the soul, there are these two faculties or centers of activity, the intellect and the will, essentially. In the beginnings of, of infused prayer, infused contemplative prayer, which comes from God, God sovereignly suspends the activity of the will, just the will, not the rest of the soul. And this is what St. Teresa calls the prayer of quiet. And so what happens in the prayer of quiet is the will is now suspended. The will is no longer 
um, accomplishing its natural activity, which is to will things, <laughs> as you might imagine. <laughs> the will is always directed towards some outside object, you know. Um, like, I will to have a drink of tea, so I'm going to take a drink right now. It's very satisfying. The, so the will is, is, always, is always directed. The will is always desiring things. The will is loving things. The will is seeking things. In the prayer of quiet, it's as if God holds the will in the palm of his hand and just puts it to sleep. And the will is suspended and the soul desires nothing. The soul is not looking for anything. It's not even looking for God. It's not even, and this is, this is the interesting thing, it's not even like loving God, at least in the sense that we normally understand love, the operation of the will. The intellect, though, is still free. And so this is, this is interesting. In later stages of contemplative prayer, the intellect is going to be suspended as well. But right now it's not. So the will is suspended in contemplative prayer, the beginnings of contemplative prayer, the prayer of quiet. The intellect is still free. So that means other thoughts will pass through the mind. There will be these distracting thoughts that, that may become through, you know, and you just bring your attention back to God. You don't pay much attention to those thoughts. You just bring them back. But the will is suspended. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if most of you listening to the podcast have had this experience at some point in your prayer. As we move into the, um, the realm of acquired passive prayer, as our prayer becomes less active, more disposed just to receiving, more open to receive from God, God will grant this favor. He's pleased to grant this favor. And the soul that begins to receive the prayer of quiet, the suspension of the will, is already moving from the third dwelling places into the fourth. Because the fourth dwelling place marks the beginning of the supernatural way of prayer, the way of infused contemplation, where God's action now has the priority. We're doing very little. We're just disposing ourselves, and God is sovereignly acting. So again, we're going to touch more on the fourth dwelling places next time. But just to focus it again on the third, the dwelling places of the exemplary life, the soul's pretty much, you know, not falling into sin, certainly not any serious sins regularly. The life is well-ordered, the life is balanced, there's regular times of prayer. How does the soul move forward? Humility, asking for greater faith and love, and practicing the way of acquired passive prayer, especially meditation, which opens up and disposes the soul for contemplation. As soon as a soul who is practicing prayer in the third dwelling places, you know, and you can judge for yourself, by the way, whether you're in the third dwelling places or not, just look at your life. Look objectively at your life. If you're living a life that's pretty well-ordered, then you should be moving into this type of prayer. And if you're not, that's okay. Just focus on whatever needs to change, you know, in order to begin to arrive at a life that's more well-ordered, and little by little, you'll come to this dwelling place uh, in God's good time. But once you're there, then when you spend your periods of prayer, what you want to do is, you know, kind of as, as quickly as you can, get to this place of acquired passive prayer where you're open and receptive. Your meditation should 
lead into this kind of acquired passive prayer. So maybe you do start with a little Lexio Divina. Maybe you, you know, read your Lenten devotional <laughs> that I recommended to you earlier in this episode. Maybe you're praying the rosary or you're praying the Jesus prayer or you're praying just with your breath and the, the holy name of Jesus. Whatever it is. You know, you're giving your intellect something to do. That's, that's the point. You're giving your intellect some discursive work something to occupy it. So you're not just sitting there with whatever random thoughts might come into your head. You're, you're doing something to focus your soul now on the presence of God, the practice of the presence of Christ. But as you do that, you know, you, you're doing your meditation and, and very naturally what you will probably begin to find is your attention becomes spontaneously drawn inward. In one place, St. Teresa kind of <laughs> delightfully describes this as like a hedgehog curling up into a ball or a tortoise withdrawing inside of its shell. If that makes sense to you, if you've experienced that movement, then you, you know what she's talking about. There's this kind of a spontaneous inward motion of the soul where your attention now is being drawn more towards the center of yourself, not so much on whatever practice you were doing, the words you were saying, the words you were reading, or the work of the imagination that you were about, you know, whatever. Your attention is drawn inward. The body is very relaxed. Your breath is probably slower and becoming more still. And what you want to do is just allow that to happen, you know, effortlessly, like uh, Dr. Donaldson was saying about letting the breath rush in. Well, just allow your attention to be drawn in, into this kind of peaceful interior silence. And as you do that, what you will begin to find is that the Lord readily grants the gift of the prayer of quiet, where the will is suspended. This doesn't last usually for very long, especially in the beginning. But uh, maybe just for 30 seconds, a few minutes, maybe as much as five minutes, the Lord will grant this suspension of the will. And basically, what you will find is just without any effort, that your, your exterior senses, your eyes, if you, if you haven't closed your eyes already, they'll spontaneously close. And everything outside will kind of lose any hold on your attention at all. It won't be attracting you. You won't be thinking about it. You'll just be drawn within. And there within, where the will is absorbed in God, you will have this experience of being very settled, very relaxed, very delighted in the presence of the living God. Now, again, your mind will not be silent completely because the intellect is still free. Only the will is suspended. So you're not desiring anything else. You're just completely delighted and satisfied with the presence of God. But the intellect is still doing its own proper work, and so thoughts will pass through the mind. If you begin to get distracted, again, just go back to your regular practice of saying a few simple words, saying the name of Jesus, whatever it might be. And when the prayer of quiet comes, the suspension of the will, just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. It's a gift the Lord gives uh, for a brief period of time. And it's the beginnings of the life of infused contemplative prayer, which will more and more become the whole interior life of the soul in union with God as it progresses into the later dwelling places. The gift of the prayer of quiet marks the entrance of the soul into the fourth dwelling place is crossing that threshold. And this is a pretty big step, a pretty big step. The soul is now moving ahead into the realms of supernatural prayer 
and the beginnings really of heaven on earth. Heaven on earth, union with God. So we'll go ahead and leave it at that for today. Um, If you have any particular questions about this or any comments you want to share, as always, feel free to either write in or send in a voice message through inyourembrace.com. I'd be very happy to answer them as best as I can or uh, at least to address them on the podcast in future weeks. And until I speak to you again next week, I wish you a very blessed beginning to this Lenten season, this new beginning of uh, the Lord's season of grace, which lies before us. And I pray that in all your different practices this Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, that you may receive even more of the life of God and the gift that he so ardently wishes to give us, which is life itself in the blessed Trinity. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.